Welcome to the Real Clear Values podcast with me, Tom English. This is a podcast about values, the good, the bad, and the ugly. In the previous episode, I spoke with Dr. Sean Fear of the University of Leeds. In that conversation, we dug into the Vietnamese perspective of the war. Most of us in the West know the Vietnam War by the American experience or through the American lens. So I'm interested in this particular episode to speak to that perspective more specifically. And to do so, I'm speaking with Dr. Tom Tunstall Alcock of the University of Manchester. I've known Tom for some time now, and he is an academic who operates in the space of US presidential history, particularly in relation to JFK and Lyndon B. Johnson's foreign policy. So he was exactly the right person to speak to on this particular topic. This conversation is a very rich one in terms of unpacking many of the lessons that are to be derived from the Vietnam War. What I found particularly interesting from this episode is the applicability of the lessons from Vietnam, how they can be applied to so many contexts of leadership and management, way beyond the parameters of warfare or history. So let's begin. Tom Dunstall-Orcock, thank you so much for joining me on the Real Clear Values podcast. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Tom, I'm really excited to have this conversation because this is going to be following on from a conversation I had with Sean Fear, who is a lecturer in international history at Leeds University, my alma mater. And you are, fairly, as of fairly recently, a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Manchester. Just to kick things off, Tom, I'd like to talk about how America got involved in Vietnam. So the the the, the road to the war in Vietnam, as, as I talked with Sean about last week, was quite a, a tortuous one, and there were many different players involved, many different turning points. But how did how did America get involved in this fairly small country in Southeast Asia? Uh, well, first of all, as I say, I'm really glad that you've spoken to Sean already, and I've got that. Vietnamese perspective in there because I, you know, I, I will be talking a lot about the American perspective and um, it, it, it should be very clear that th- this is not a story that's just an American story you know this is the Vietnam War is or the American War as it would be in Vietnam you know I think it's um, just as and not more significant for, for the Vietnamese people than it is for the Americans so I think that that's really important that that's in there as well so I'll feel better now about talking just from an American perspective without feeling like that side of the story is being addressed and that's brilliant um, and I think I can probably make things slightly less less long and tortuous when it comes to thinking about about the American side of things, and and I'll try to keep it fairly straightforward, uh, without going into to every possible detail, um, because the the, the the story of the history of Vietnam and, and and its relationship with with neighbors and with with foreign powers goes back much further than American intervention. There's been conflict uh, within Vietnam for for long before the United States gets involved, but probably the place where it becomes most relevant for the United States is that. Uh, during the 19th century, uh, Vietnam and, and neighboring countries become colonial possessions of the French. During World War II, uh, when Japan is expanding into Southeast Asia, the French are pushed out. During that time, you get a, a resistance to the Japanese led by a man called Ho Chi Minh and leading the Viet Minh in resistance against the Japanese. And at that point, Ho Chi Minh, and his Vietnamese fighters are, of course, on the same side as the United States because they're fighting against the Japanese. So there's cooperation there, there's working with, with United States agents. And really where, where things become 
put a kind of crucial moment at which you start to see which way the United States is going to be, be going on, on certain issues in the region, either at the end of World War II, Ho Chi Minh and the, and the Viet Minh, declare independence and say, well, look, we've, we have beaten the Japanese, we, we've won our freedom, we're going to declare independence, and we're going to look to the United States as a country that supports, you know, freedom from colonialism, um, and look to them for support in, in, in creating this newly independent country. But of course, at the same time as that's happening, we're also entering the early stages of the Cold War. The United States is, has this growing rivalry with the Soviet Union that's soon going to take over much of it of its um, much of global international relations, really. But at this point, the United States is very aware that allies are going to be important. The French are an important ally, and the French decided at the end of World War II, we want back in to Vietnam. So the Americans, under President Truman at this point, um, essentially back the French, or at least give the French assent to go back in and reclaim their colonies, ignore Ho Chi Minh's claims for, of independence, and the French go back in, you get this very long, bloody war uh, with the French trying to re-establish control. Now, why, another reason why it's significant they don't support Ho Chi Minh is that Ho Chi Minh uh, is a communist, he's a follower of, of communist teachings. And again, when you've got these early stages of the Cold War and it's starting to take shape, this rivalry between the US on the one side and the Soviet Union on the other, it's not helpful if you are a known communist to be asking for help from, from the Americans. So that's a kind of initial stage. So already you've got the sense that the United States is not particularly amenable to supporting Ho Chi Minh in, in Vietnam. The next big stage really comes in 1954 when we have the partition um, of Vietnam. And this is when the French finally defeated, unable to keep fighting, pull out, sue for peace. There is a, a series of peace talks that end up dividing the country in two with Ho Chi Minh in the north uh, in a country that is communist, allied to the Soviet Union and, and China and by this stage, and a southern Vietnam, uh, which is connected to the West, backed by Western powers, but particularly backed by the United States. So this is what happens when you have the Democratic Republic of Vietnam in the North and the Republic of Vietnam in the South, but it's easier probably just to say North and South Vietnam because the names are essentially meaningless in terms of which is democratic and which is not. Neither are basically democratic, but the key point at this stage in 54 is that you have an, one country which is connected to the communist powers and you have one country which is connected to uh, the non-communist powers, the Western world, the United States. And that division and those, those alliances are what really is going to drive American intervention over the next few years, because over the next several years, what basically happens is there is no reunification, which had been the initial plan, and there begins a, a rebellion begins in the South, led by communists to try and overthrow uh, the government in South Vietnam under a man called Ngo Dinh Diem, I'm sure you've heard all of this from, from Sean already, but from the US perspective, at least, it, this becomes problematic because what, from the perspective of the United States, what we're seeing is a country allied to the West standing up to communism, but being undermined by a rebellion from within. And that rebellion is increasingly supported by Ho Chi Minh and the North Vietnamese. So what is essentially a civil war between Vietnamese over the future of their country is given this global relevance by the fact that one side is allied to the West and one side is allied to the East. And increasingly, the United States is going to get more and more involved in backing the South, supporting the South. Uh, we can talk a bit more in, in a little bit about, about what that looks like, but the basic principle is there is a commitment to back South Vietnam 
and increasingly they're going to commit more and more there until they get drawn into the conflict to start fighting there themselves. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. One of the things that that I've taken as as common wisdom on America's involvement in the Vietnam War is something that you've already alluded to, Tom. This idea of the the domino theory that if if these countries in Southeast Asia fall to communism, if if you like, then they're all going to fall, and then that's going to play into the global spread of communism. And the Americans, from a geopolitical point of view, maybe some might say from a hegemonic point of view, global governance point of view, want to to nip that in the bud. When I was speaking with Sean last week, however, what was quite interesting was that he was saying that as America increasingly got into the war and and they got deeper and deeper involved in the war and had the sort of levels of soldiers in there that you'd see in Full Metal Jacket and films like that, it was more about Lyndon Johnson's concern about domestic politics and the desire to project American power, American strength abroad. What would you say about that, Tom? Because I, th- I think this is quite interesting and it's, it would be interesting to get your perspective on this from, from an American point of view. What, what's, really, what's really driving this over time? Would you say that it is primarily the domino theory or would you say that, the, that there's more to be said about Johnson's concern, LBJ's concern about the situation at home? So it's worth saying, and we don't need to go into this in, in, in huge amount of detail, but this is a, these are questions that have been debated for, for decades by historians in literally thousands of books and articles, um, and you'll read a thousand different opinions on them. So this would just be, be, be my take of the best of, of synthesizing some of those things that, that I can do. Um, certainly there is a worry about the domino theory among some policymakers early on. It's an idea that's first sort of articulated during the 1950s, really under, under Dwight Eisenhower, this idea that, yeah, dominoes fall. Once one country falls, others fall, and therefore you have to hold the line to make sure that you prevent this kind of collapse through the whole of Asia. Now, of course, there's no way to prove whether that was a correct theory or not, because it, it doesn't happen at that stage. You know, that there is not, a, you know, Vietnam does not become a communist country until the mid-70s, and some people argue that by buying time, that prevented the domino theory happening. So it's possible to know whether it's true or not, but certainly it is a concern. But why I think it's important to even go back to that starting point and talk a little bit about, about Eisenhower and, and, and also Kennedy as well, uh, before we even get to Lyndon Johnson, is that the United States is deeply involved and deeply committed in Vietnam well before we get to Lyndon Johnson's presidency. So he's the president who, in, who first sends in official combat troops and says the United States is going to take on some of the responsibility of fighting this war. But Eisenhower is plowing millions of dollars in military and, and, and other aid into South Vietnam. Um, Kennedy is sending military advisors, which by the time Kennedy uh, is assassinated, there are 16,000 American military advisors in Vietnam, and they're doing a lot more than advising. They are going on combat missions. Americans are fighting and dying before Lyndon Johnson gets there. So there's, there's this kind of increase of, of engagement that doesn't quite peak with troops until Lyndon Johnson, but he's not someone who is an aberration in terms of how he's handling the situation in Vietnam. Essentially, what happens is the situation in South Vietnam gets worse and worse. Eisenhower, Kennedy, and initially Johnson try and just stave off any need to intervene by sending advisors, by sending money, by, by bombing in some cases. 
And ultimately the situation gets so bad where Johnson is told, you have to either send troops or pull out. And the decision he makes to intervene. And that's the point where you get, I think, this really crucial idea about, well, why does he then make that, that call? What is so important here that rather than saying, well, we've tried, we've spent millions, probably billions of dollars, we have sat, had advisors, we have tried to support their government, nothing has worked, therefore it's time to, to cut our losses. And this is where things become a little bit more, more, more complicated and where I think certainly there is a great deal of domestic political interest going on. And Johnson would say, and, and, and did say this at the time, that his great fear was that if he was seen to lose Vietnam, then he would be um, vulnerable to attack from the right at home and his great society programs, his domestic progressive legislation would be kind of assailed on all sides and he would, he would be uh, crippled as a president. There is some precedent for this and he would point to Harry Truman who went China um, when the Chinese communists, when the Chinese civil war in 1949, that Truman's domestic legislative agenda was, was really quite badly affected by that. He would point to Eisenhower um, coming under a lot of criticism following the Cuban revolution in 1959. But again, it's one of these situations where, you know, it, 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 certainly he felt that way and some of his advisors, I think, also felt that way. But you know, subsequently, I think a lot of the historians have looked at this and said, actually, you know, Johnson's in a very strong position when he makes a decision to intervene. He's just won a resounding electoral victory. His domestic policies are pretty popular, at least among kind of his, his base, and he has widespread support he could have decided to withdraw at this point. So then there is other things going on. Domino theory is yeah. still there. Domestic credibility is there. There's also this idea of international credibility. I think that's just as important to, to keep yeah. in mind, this idea that um, within the Cold War, deterrence is really important and being seen to be strong is really important. So yeah. there's a sense that if we pull out, then what good is our word elsewhere? This phrase yeah. paper tiger gets used a lot of, well, we might look scary, we might say that we you know, will defend our allies around the world, but if we just pull out as soon as the going gets tough, then what's our word worth? Yeah, yeah. Again, a lot of other allies are telling him that's not true. Charles de Gaulle is telling him just to get out. Um, mm. But there is this sense that there's domestic credibility at stake. There's global credibility at stake. Um, and that there is kind of a, a genuine risk. You know, some, I, think, I think it's quite easy to be quite cynical about what the policymakers thought, and there definitely should be because there's a lot of quite unpleasant things going on. But I do think there is a genuine belief among a lot of American policymakers at this time that communism is a genuine global threat and it needs to be combated. Yeah, interesting, interesting. There's a couple of things that really leap out to me in this discussion, Tom, just in terms of America's drivers, because America's been, been very heavily criticized by from various different quarters as being this great hegemon or this this big bully that wants to position itself as a great power but what it sounds to me from what you're saying is that is this is very much driven by if not fear at least risk aversion and risk mitigation protection rather than a desire for imperial power would would you say that's fair yeah i mean i i, I think I think one way to think about it is that, I mean, to go up to sort of the classic hist teaching history as an introduction to kind of long-term causes and short-term causes, yeah. right? And the kind of big picture stuff and the sort of more immediate decision-making. And certainly um, I don't disagree with 
So the historians who would who would place Vietnam and intervention of Vietnam in a kind of broader pattern of mm. you know US hegemonic behavior and you know and certainly economic imperialism and you know the Cold War as much as a battle of ideologies is also a battle for whose economic system is going to be dominant in the world and yep. you know the US benefits from the more countries that are within its economic sphere and trading sphere you know is all benefits United States. So I certainly don't disagree with the idea that there is definitely that aspect to it. But when we're looking at the kind of immediate decision making that Johnson is making, certainly in this sort of 64, 65, 66 period, which we're really getting the kind of ramping up and that intervention to what we sort of know or would think of as the Vietnam War at its height of American soldiers on the ground fighting in mm. South Vietnam. Yeah, I, I think at that point, I, I don't get the impression that he is thinking in those big picture mm. terms about the America's global empirical role. I think there is that it, it is fear about the consequences of withdrawing yeah made worse i think for him and now you know if we want to get i can talk about lyndon johnson as, as a man and as a president for hours because he, he's an absolutely fascinating character mm. um he has a reputation for being pretty dreadful when it comes to foreign policy i think that's actually a bit overstated but he's certainly not as confident as someone like john f kennedy when it comes to kind of making maybe bold judgment calls on foreign policy mm. so i think there's a degree of kind of the individual in there yeah but also a lot of say that if you the structure of American foreign relations and American policy in Vietnam at this period has been we contain communism, we support our allies, we do what it takes to back South Vietnam. So you do have this buildup of precedent that he is following. And there is genuine an anxiety and a fear of what will happen if he doesn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. So let, let's let's get into Vietnam itself, the country and, and the Americans in Vietnam. You mentioned that to start with, well, the Americans had a long history of being involved with Vietnam at, at some point. I mean, even I think even FDR was talking with the French, wasn't he, in relation to what was going to happen to Vietnam after World War II, and FDR was very much against colonialism and imperialism of all, certainly the traditional senses of of colonialism and imperialism and he he gave churchill a good run for his money in trying to decolonize or, or try to dismantle the, the british empire so there was a lot going on there historically um i picked out a quote recently I, i've started reading a biography of dwight eisenhower by the gene edward smith one and th there's a quote that i saw from him from 1954 where he said our most valued, our most costly asset is our young men. Let's don't use them any more than we have to. I'm not sure if that's grammatically correct, but I'm reading that verbatim. So, yeah. So let, let's not use them any more than we have to. So, so there wasn't this. There wasn't this. I think it's really important to, to make this point that America wasn't going in all guns blazing to start with. So, could we talk now a little bit, Tom, about America's approach in Vietnam in terms of? supporting the south against the north and doing the fighting and and how how did that change over time sure and and, and i think it's it's really important so that that that, that point that eisenhower i think eisenhower was in a very strong position when talking about issues like this because he was you know he was essentially the most experienced military leader in the united states you know he'd been supreme allied commander during world war ii um and as president could speak with with a huge amount of experience on this and you know one of his great um positives of his presidency would be so that you know that with, with a few minor exceptions that are a bit debatable he would say he did not send american troops into combat you know he did not send american troops to war during during his presidency um again so mr ones might say there's a bit of nuance to that but basically he, he didn't 
And you see that continued reluctance to a degree on Dina that Kennedy is much more happy to send advisors than he is combat troops. And it is this big wrench that Johnson, having gone through the 1964 election campaign, promising not to send American troops and painting his rival Barry Goldwater as the extremist who would lead America into war, eventually he very reluctantly does send American combat troops. So certainly, yeah, the, the, there is not a desperate rush to send combat troops in. And really the early stage of American involvement were about trying to build up the South Vietnamese forces. So, so initially, Kennedy's advisors are there to help fly helicopters, train the South Vietnamese army how to use weapons, to have maybe one or two people accompanying them on combat missions and trying to combat the insurgency in the South. The problem is that by the time we get to the mid-60s, it's becoming clear that this is really going to be enough. That the So the, the Viet Cong, as they are known by the Americans, the South Vietnamese rebels, are being well backed by the North Vietnamese and the North Vietnamese regular troops and are being well supplied. And then it's just becoming clear that the South Vietnamese army with just American advisors isn't going to be able to cut it. And probably the, the big change and the moment that really um, is going to um, mark the real American commitment to the war is when the bombing campaign of Rolling Thunder starts. And this is, and again, this is where I think, I think we, have to, we have to be quite clear about what an almost a strange war the United States ends up fighting here in, in Vietnam, because it's not an all-out war against an enemy that you want to invade, occupy, defeat. There's a couple of different parts to it. And one is that the United States is trying to get the North Vietnamese to stop supporting the rebellion in the South. But they are never at any point considering or willing to invade North Vietnam, because that would escalate the war to another level. And as Linda Johnson is absolutely terrified of, might bring China into the conflict as well. And as I think subsequently we've discovered he was right, had he invaded, the Chinese would have responded and we'd have potentially been looking at World War III. So you are, you are in, the North Vietnamese are an enemy, but you're not invading or fight the North Vietnamese directly. But the United States and Lyndon Johnson is willing to bomb them. And the idea of the bombing is that we will, if we bomb North Vietnam long enough, they'll want to talk, they'll want to negotiate, and they'll want to stop supporting the South. That's the idea. And at the same time, the other element of the war is that you're fighting an insurgency in the South. That's guerrilla warfare. That is people who know the territory, who know the terrain, um, who are not engaging you in direct combat, but are fighting, um, say, a, a war in the Vietnamese countryside. But again, you are not fighting an enemy you are trying to eradicate and invade and occupy. The goal of the United States campaign in South Vietnam is to stabilize South Vietnam and leave it as an independent, strong country with its borders protected. But how that, how that war is being fought is destroying much of South Vietnam. So one of the major problems you have with, our, with the war as a whole, and the, the biggest problems the United States has with this intervention is, you have these very badly defined goals that are very difficult to pursue. So the idea is we're going to bomb the North, get them to stop supporting the South, and fight this conflict in the South to defeat the insurgency there. And ultimately, they're not able to do either. And there's several reasons why that is. Um, far more than we'd have time to go into here, but, but what a lot of it comes down to is really not understanding the conflict they're fighting and not having um, 
I'd say sensible, achievable goals or a clear idea of how they're going to do it. So just for instance, the idea of bombing the North in, in a lot of ways stems from ideas, and it sounds a bit odd, but it, it stems from ideas about modernization and development that have been quite important in the thinking of United States foreign policy in the, in the certainly in the late 50s and early 60s. And what drives that idea is this idea that, that every country is looking to modernize and develop and, and build up their industry and become a more, a more modern, economically productive country. So part of the, the plan for, for bombing off Vietnam is we're going to hit factories, we're going to hit suppliers, we're going to hit their kind of their, their just growing economies. This is going to damage them so badly that they'll be desperate for us to stop and they'll sue for peace. Problem is the North Vietnamese care far more about reunification than they do about factories and they're also being continually resupplied by the Soviet Union and by China who are replacing oil munitions also supplies the United States is destroying as quickly as they say as quickly as they can destroy them so there's just a fundamental misunderstanding of what that bombing will do it's never really likely to bring the North Vietnamese to the table and at the same time we have again you see some of these ideas about modernization playing out in the south as well but you have um so under Kennedy, this starts, yeah, what's known as the strategic Hamlet program that Sean might have spoken about, this idea of that we're going to help modernize and defend South Vietnam by moving people out of their homes and into these defended, but also kind of modern villages. Again, it might sound okay in principle, but in practice, a lot of the time you are tearing people out of their homes, moving them from where they, they'd lived. And putting them in, to be honest, if you see the pictures, look look like fairly grim, almost um, prison camp-like place with barbed wire and, and armed guards. So it's hugely unpopular, even though it's about trying, from the United States perspective, kind of trying to modernize and, and, and save this country. You're also at the same time using things like defoliants to try and uh, remove the cover that your enemy is using. But what that means is you're destroying half the forests and countryside, mm. again, of the country that you're in theory trying to develop, build up and save. So this is all a very kind of very long winded answer of saying that as the United States gets drawn into this conflict with these basic principles of kind of build up, protect the South, stop the North supporting this, this rebellion, there's not really any point at which the, there's the kind of, you get the impression that there is a kind of a stopping and kind of reassessing this and really thinking, is this possible? And are the tactics that we're pursuing actually going to achieve these goals? And it just becomes increasingly clear that they're not. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting what you say there about things like Operation Rolling Thunder and how the, the, the bombing campaigns were put in place to with specific ends in mind, but not that curvy, clearly defined goals and and goals that, that weren't really realistic in view of what else was going on. It's as if they they didn't know the full chessboard. They didn't know what what was going to be relied upon. And also the 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 values of, of the North Vietnamese as well, you know, thinking that, well, if we if we damage them economically and we damage them industrially, that's going to be more important than anything else, which of course it wasn't at all. Like you say, it was they were about reunification, national sovereignty, and also having this particular form of government in place. So it seemed as though it was very difficult from that point of view to achieve any sort of outcome like the United States wanted to. I would say, and, and Sean probably said this far better than I can, but um, you know, I think it's fairly clear that the planners and the North Vietnamese government understood the Americans much better than the Americans understood them. 
Mm. Basic idea became, you know, we can lose 10 of our troops to every one American. And the American people are going to get sick of this long before we do. And we're much more willing to fight this war of attrition than than the Americans are. I think that proved correct. Mm. And the American idea that the North Vietnamese could be bombed into submission and that American firepower would win in South Vietnam, both just proved to be incorrect ultimately. Interesting. The that that leads on nicely to the next thing I'd like to talk about, Tom, and that that's the way in which America was was fighting this war, and like you say, destroying the flora and the fauna in the country that you are supposed to be protecting is not a good way of of winning hearts and minds there. So, what what sort of things do the Americans do that really turn people against them? Besides that, because I, the, the, there's all sorts we could go into here, but. But what I understand, I've, I've watched the, the majority of Ken Burns' documentary on Vietnam. And what I understand is that there were all sorts of things that the Americans did that, that were extremely, and not just antagonistic, but that would really, could, could make sworn enemies of, of people in, in the south of Vietnam, whether it's erroneously bombing certain places or killing civilians or roughing people up that they shouldn't have done or, or, or acts of barbarism on the ground. Of course, there are acts of barbarism on both sides in the war, but but how, how does this really change? In what what are some of the, the key the key things in the United States approach that really change how how the the Vietnamese people in the South who who were previously supportive saw them, and how the the American people start to see America's cause in in due time as well. First of all, congratulations on making it through that much of the Ken Burns documentary because it, it, it's a, it's an amazing achievement, but it's a lot of time. Yeah, it's it a is. big time commitment. Um, yeah, so and maybe we can talk a little bit in in, in a moment about um, kind of why maybe some of the violence of the Vietnam War has been kind of remembered so vividly or, or portrayed so, so so repeatedly as as it has. Because there's some interesting things there um, about about how unique this violence is really, but. Um, it, it comes back, I think, to this idea that we've mentioned just briefly that you that the United States is fighting a war all within the confines of South Vietnam because they're not attacking North Vietnam with, with troops. So it's American troops operating within the confines of South Vietnam, fighting against um, what they'd see as, a, as an insurgency. And that is an enemy who's not wearing uniforms, who is not declaring themselves, who is not lining up in the field for battle. Um, in any sort of traditional way. So from an American point of view, it becomes an almost impossible situation where soldiers are unable to tell the difference between civilians and the enemy. There's plenty of other issues going on as well about how young many of the American troops are, how badly trained and underprepared, certainly as the war drags on, um, of actually you know how well-trained, how well-prepared um, the Americans who are there are. And then the, you have the, sort of the broad strategy, which becomes to, to combat the insurgency and combat the guerrilla tactics, which is becomes known as search and destroy, which is basically sending American units out into the field with the goal of going and locating Vietnamese and um, killing as many as they can, essentially being as, as destructive as they can. Um, and often uh, with the pretty indiscriminate use of air support, um, and so that includes, we've already mentioned, the use of defoliants, uh, but also things like napalm or just, just airstrikes, missile strikes on, on areas. The kind of tactics which, you know, it, uh, this, is, this is not precision warfare. 
this does not tell the difference between you know a, a civilian and a combatant a lot so there are lots of civilian deaths um often accidental but i think as as, as you alluded to and certainly as would have been featured in the ken burns doc documentary certainly not always accidental and this becomes increasingly clear uh in the late 60s when these key moments of of atrocities become public knowledge so uh, the my Lai massacre is the most the most famous um which but but is certainly not a unique event what one of the worst but you know the, there were other incidents um of soldiers essentially just american soldiers simply entering villages um where they may have been told there was a a, a presence of the enemy um but essentially murdering raping killing um women children the elderly um and and committing pretty brutal acts of you know war crimes essentially and these tactics again when we when we said when the idea of the war in the south is to try and defeat this insurgency bring the people together and create a strong south vietnam you know with the best will in the world this this is not going to happen you know, there is a lot of talk about winning hearts and minds but how do you do that when most for most vietnamese their only encounters with american soldiers you know unless they live in the cities their their encounters with americans are as these forces on these search and destroy missions um you know, again i've not done research into the vietnamese experience and sean can speak to this better but even even if you were someone who was either more inclined towards supporting the government in in saigon or the americans or you were just completely neutral and you didn't really care who was in power um you know the american troops are not doing a great deal here to 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 win you over with the with the destructive tactics that are being used and the sort of violence that's being employed mm. now i would say that i don't know that necessarily the violence being committed by american troops in vietnam is worse or more extreme than in other conflicts and there's something there's certainly things we can talk about there about the coverage of that yeah. and how it was reported and who was seeing it um but because it's being fought all within south vietnam because there is this sense among american soldiers that you really it's difficult so hard to tell the difference between who is an enemy and, and who is not um it, it does think it's much more concentrated in civilian areas than perhaps other conflicts have been mm. in so yeah so certainly in terms of the, the the basic strategy within south vietnam is one that is incredibly destructive and one that's incredibly difficult to then win the vietnamese people over to your side Mm, mm. This is interesting, and especially interesting in the context of what's happening in Ukraine at the moment. We've been shocked and appalled by what is happening there and the acts of, of barbarism that have been perpetrated by Vladimir Putin's Russia and the, and the troops over there, and, and even on the, the troops on the, the Russian side who don't want to be fighting in that war. What strikes me as particularly awful are the, the stories of, of people being raped and elderly people being raped. America has always at least positioned itself that the persona of America has always been that it's on the side of right. How how then did it ever get to that? How did it get to the point where those troops felt that they were justified to to perpetrate those acts in Vietnam? So I suppose the first thing to say would would, would be that I would never say there is a point at which anyone would be justified or possibly even feel justified and that these are it also I think is important to, to state that I think because certain acts of violence being committed by American troops in Vietnam have received a large amount of coverage 
there was you know, the Milai massacre led to a court martial of, of William Calley, of one of the um, officers involved in the Milai massacre that became a, a huge national story and a kind of real point of, sort of um, almost pre-culture war, culture wars over kind of kind of what this trial meant. And subsequently, popular culture has returned to the Vietnam War over and over again, and often focusing on those acts of violence. There is a danger, I think, of overstating how extreme or how even out of the ordinary the acts of violence that are being perpetrated here by American soldiers are. Because I think and you, you touched on this in talking about, about Ukraine, that there is no conflict, no extended conflict like this that, that is fought in civilian areas and drags out over weeks and months where you do not get atrocities and violence against civilians, or at least I'm not aware of one. Um, and what becomes really interesting about the Vietnam case and the, the trial of Cali is that some of his biggest defenders and the defenders of American troops who are being prosecuted for uh, war crimes coming to Vietnam are World War II veterans who have a reputation, this idea of the kind of greatest generation idea, right? That this, exactly as you said, the idea that American soldiers um, are heroes, are liberators, um, are, you know, marching into Europe, handing out chocolate bars to children, um, and liberating prison camps. And, you know, that that's a very powerful image of American troops from, from World War II. And there is there, there is truth to it. But also what, say, a lot of World War II veterans say when these trials are coming out, of, of, of these stories of atrocity Vietnam start coming out, is American veterans saying, well, if these kids are on trial, we should have been on trial too. We did things that you would not want to hear about. This happens in every war. And there becomes a real debate about Vietnam whether... Is this something distinct and unique about the Vietnam War? Or actually, is this just a type of violence that gets perpetrated in every conflict? And because of the media access to Vietnam, which we see television crews in a war zone for the first times ever, broadcasting on the day, you know, what, what has been happening, that there are photographers present at My Lai and, and in other incidences too, that are we just getting an insight into things that have always been going on? Now, I think there is something unique about the violence of Vietnam to an extent. And we've talked a little bit about how young some of the soldiers were, how inexperienced, the nature of the conflict, where there's that blurred line between civilian and enemy. Um, some people might might point to some of the, uh, you know, the, the widespread drug use. But ultimately, I, I think there's as much, it's as much a story about what an extended war does to people and the violence yeah. that, that it engenders let's say Vietnam is in many ways a story of, of a conflict that just gets attention and has evidence and images that maybe wouldn't have been present in a war like World War II, which becomes mm. much easier to then portray as, you know, the great noble cause, whereas Vietnam is this much murkier, more difficult conflict morally in many ways. And then when you add the evidence of these atrocities and this violence into it, it creates this much more powerful idea of this war that is in some ways just more horrible than other wars. Yeah, very, that's a very, very interesting point and one that, that's really worth bearing in mind, Tom, especially when you when you link that back to, to, to World War II as well, because we have a very, it's very easy for us to have a, a rose-tinted viewpoint of, of World War II. And there were some, there, there are well-known things in World War II that the Allies did that were absolutely awful, uh, really awful, such as the, the bombing of Dresden and things like that, for example, which which were really you might say beyond the pale 
even though okay you're fighting against the, the nazis and hitler and everything and all what they would they did and were doing but nevertheless the, there's no there's no absolute virtue on on any side in a war so that's a great point to bring world war ii in. also the point you make as well about the media coverage i think that is absolutely essential now accepting all of that i think another question i'd like to dig into tom is how does how does the vietnam war change the way that americans see themselves because i've had conversations with other academics outside of the podcast who've mentioned that the vietnam war is quite an axial moment in terms of how people see america how americans see themselves and and even some start to engage in revisionist history where they 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 hark back to the new deal and say well maybe the new deal wasn't so great after all because it prolongs this this capitalist this horrible capitalist machine so how does just to reiterate the question tom how does the vietnam war change the way that americans see themselves that's a really interesting question um and i think just to as a starting point you know, i think the debates around the cali trial are a really interesting kind of illustrative point in this that the, you get this kind of cultural moment where there are commentators veterans politicians weighing in on the idea of even trying american soldiers for for these incidents and there is a a, a real struggle to to incorporate into what's essentially been a, a kind of myth of american exceptionalism right it's a very powerful idea in the united states and i've been for a long time that the united states is, is different to other countries its soldiers are different it goes to war for different reasons you know we go all the way back to to world war one and you know and and woodrow wilson had had described that as a you know as a war uh, to intervene for the preservation of democracy right it was about saving democratic principles in the world and then World War II had been quite an easy conflict, right, for, for FDR and the Allies, again, to make this very clear moral distinction. We're fighting fascism, we're fighting Nazism, we're fighting Japanese militarism, um, and we are the democracies, you know, and we are the ones who are fighting on, on, this, on the side of good. And it's a very compelling and very powerful narrative, and it also taps into a lot of the histories of the United States more broadly from, from founding, from manifest destiny you know lots of ideas about america as being different and special every country has their own national myths i'm not saying that america is any worse than anywhere else but that those ideas have been very powerful for americans so yeah so there is this this moment of kind of grappling with what the vietnam war means what does it mean that we're now fighting in this conflict where we don't really know what our end goal is where we are dropping thousands of tons of bombs um, in North Vietnam, where um, millions of Vietnamese are dying, we don't know what the end point is, and now we're getting these stories of mass atrocities. And of course, you remember as well, it's provoking mass protests at home. That by the by the mid '60s, there were already a major protest movement, and by the later '60s, you know, there there is a huge groundswell of opposition to what's hugely divisive at home yeah. as well. So yes, yeah, so, so so there is very much a sense that the Vietnam War is difficult to fit within that narrative on the one hand and i think and, and we'll i'll come back to that point in a minute but also that it's in many ways an end point to this sort of trajectory that the united states has been on of mm. going increasingly powerful intervening initially in world war one and then world war two being victorious each time and ultimately end of world war two really reshaping much of the world 
yeah. there's this phrase that sometimes uses the idea that the period after World War II is that there's this illusion of omnipotence. This yes. idea that right, whatever we put our mind to, we we can do. You know, the United States has to. We have the capacity, the willpower, um, the economic strength, the military strength to do essentially whatever we want. And the mm. Cold War has been increasing and has been about increasing commitment, increasing commitment worldwide, that we're not now just containing Soviets in Europe, we're now containing uh, communism in Southeast Asia, in Africa, in Latin America. The commitments have grown and grown and grown. And the Vietnam War is this point at which those kind of costs really come home and the limits of American power are demonstrated. And without wanting to oversimplify things, this is why a lot of people kind of point to the 70s as this kind of almost this sort of decade of malaise, right? Where mm. there is a, almost a kind of crisis of confidence among American politicians, the American people of, you know, what is our role in the world? What is our, our purpose? That, you know, they're essentially defeated in Vietnam and have, have to withdraw. Um, and that legacy, the fear of intervention, hangs over American foreign policy for years. Um, there is a series of, of other setbacks, things like the Iranian hostage crisis that's seen again as kind of being these, these damaging impacts on, on American world power, economic challenges. Um, and it really takes until Reagan comes into office or runs his campaign and explicitly makes his campaign about rejecting all of that malaise and self-doubt and reclaiming America's global, powerful role. Mm. So I think and it, 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 for some Americans, certainly, I think the Vietnam War kind of shattered some illusions with long-lasting consequences. But I think for others, it was a, maybe a moment of doubt and questioning. But then what Reagan really did, and with the kind of real resurgence for American conservatism in the 1980s, was actually to challenge that narrative and say, no, we yeah. were right to intervene in Vietnam. It was, he literally uses the phrase noble cause and says, you know, we were preventing dominoes falling. We were right to defend the South Vietnamese and American veterans of that war should be celebrated in the same way as veterans of any other war. So Reagan explicitly makes the effort to pull the Vietnam War back into that myth of American exceptionalism, American engagement. And I think that's been very effective a lot of Americans, you know, we, we, we don't see a kind of pulling back of American events, interventionism in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, right? Mm. You, we still have this, you know, these periods of, of interventions. And yes, Vietnam is often harked back to, and it's a talking point, will, this, will X intervention be another Vietnam? But I think that is much more of an issue uh, for the left, for liberals, maybe, you know, you know who are, who, uh, questioning that that role and questioning American intervention. But what Reagan I think really really does for the right in America is to kind of pull Vietnam back into that myth, says, forget all the stuff about, about me lying atrocities and violence. Remember that we were there to defend democracy from communism. And really there there is a sense in which for some Americans at least, there's been a rejection of, of that. Right. So so he was almost saying our intentions we're good and that's good enough. Something to sure, and, well, sure. And, and, and then it's also very much tied into a kind of cultural conservative renaissance, mm -hmm. but also a revisionist take in the historiography of, of Americans, uh, usually more conservative scholars, arguing very similarly to Reagan that intervention was right, the United States is the right thing. And actually, uh, quite a lot of work saying 
we also could have won, but here are the reasons why we lost. And there are various right. places that blame is placed. Some cases that's the media. Um, it's liberal politicians for mm -hmm. being too willing to bend to public opinion or critical media coverage. There's accounts that argue it should have been fought more unconventionally, more like guerrilla warfare. There's some that argue it should have been fought more conventionally, like traditional warfare. But either way, there is this push of, of opinion saying, no, actually, it wasn't just a big mistake. We could have won. We were right to be there. And, um, and, and therefore, it does fit within our idea of, kind of American exceptionalism, that we are on the right side of history. And you know, there's something very appealing in that. And, say, and, and Reagan really runs with those ideas and, say, and uses yeah. it when, because he wants to kind of make, have this re-energized, newly ag aggressive United States again, which he does, you know, and a lot of that is about pushing away that legacy of Vietnam. Yeah. And his successor, George W. Bush, you know, literally says with the intervention in the first Gulf War, he says, I think we've kicked the Vietnam syndrome. You know, I think Americans right. are no longer scared to intervene again. Interesting, interesting. And, and maybe maybe easy for them to say, perhaps, maybe easy for, for Reagan and, and Bush to say that when they weren't in the hot seat. So just to take that, that point on, how, how does the Vietnam War affect LBJ, Lyndon Johnson, the man who was in the hot seat? Poor, poor Lyndon Johnson. Uh, I've got a lot, lot of sympathy for him, I think, because there, there is a degree, I mentioned this already, of you know Eisenhower and Kennedy both essentially kick the can down the road with Vietnam. They don't cut ties. They keep escalating involvement, but they never reached a point at which the decision has to be made go in or pull out it's johnson who that lands on and ultimately he's the one who does decide to go in uh but and, and for him it really you know it's the ruining of his presidency he is he, he's in a bit of a reputational resurgence uh, because of what he achieved domestically you know he is the president who passed the voting rights act the civil rights act medicare medicaid federal aid to education you know, a hugely transformative piece of legislation domestically whether you agree with a lot of these policies or not, you know, not many presidents have achieved as much as he did in terms of legislation. But Vietnam is the kind of shadow that hangs over his, his presidency that ruined his reputation. And you know, he, he was eligible to run again in 1968 for the presidency. And he announces uh, in the spring of 1968 that he won't be running again. And that is essentially because Vietnam has become such a toxic issue. It's so divisive domestically. And there is so much opposition to him within his own party, within the Democratic Party, um, that he knows he's very unlikely to win re-election. That he essentially as well, he just can't face it. I think that the of what a challenge and what difficulty it's going to be. He's facing challenges from within his own party. So really, it is the ruining of his presidency. And though we haven't talked quite about sort of, sort of the ending or the, the the later parts of the war, but I mean, you know, the Tet Offensive is probably the sort of the big turning point. In that, that in early 68, there's been talk through late 67, early 68, that the the, the war is being won, that uh, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Um, as he's saying, he's brought back the, the commanding officer of American forces in Vietnam, General William Westmoreland, to kind of do a bit of a press tour and talk about how well things are going. So this is kind of almost in, in build up to the 68 presidential campaign, Johnson trying to lay the groundwork to say, look, we're getting there, we're winning. Then in early 68, the North Vietnamese army and the Viet Cong, the NLF, launch a series of attacks throughout South Vietnam. 
which militarily are not successful. They're actually beaten back and the American and South Vietnamese forces win most of those conflicts. But what it demonstrates is that this war is nowhere near won, that the war is going to drag on, that the forces of the North Vietnamese and, and the South Vietnamese insurgents are still capable of doing this. And this is when then there is, I mean, there's some debate about what the exact turning points are, but from this point onwards, really, you have a shift in media coverage, a shift in public opinion. And I think Johnson too, as well, acknowledging he, he's done as a leader and he can no longer do this. And so people vying for the presidency in the 68 election are then going to be instead putting forward um, their plans or what they will do in order to either win the conflict, get America out of the conflict, to do something other than keep fighting it. Because Johnson has proved unable to win and even though he makes some efforts to try and find peace deals in, in 68 and the rest of his presidency, as a lamed up president who's not going to be re-elected, he's quite limited in, in power and leverage and he's also unable to find a peace deal. So, yeah, so mm. his his presidency essentially is, is, is ended by this conflict. Mm. Yeah, and it, you, you wonder what effect it had on the man himself because, if I recall correctly, he didn't die too long after he left office, did he? 72. Two seventy three, I think. Yeah, and yeah, he left so office in, in January sixty nine. Yeah, so yeah. He, um, he, he, my my understanding of it is that he was quite haunted by by some of those decisions that he made. I think um, Doris Kearns Goodwin talks about this in in her writing. Yeah, and, and it's quite quite interesting her her take on it because she had quite an intimate in, insight on. I, I I think there's definitely a Vietnam is a huge part of it, and certainly I think. There would be guilt and guilt and, and regret with some of those decisions. And I'm a big fan of Lyndon Johnson, but I would say he's also a huge narcissist and egotist. Mm. And I think a large part of that was just his despair at the end of his political career. You right. know, I, I think he is, you know, on a human level, you know, I think he did regret mm. the decisions he made. But I do think a large part of that was for the damage it did to his presidency, that, you know, his whole political career, he'd worked his way from... Um, essentially growing up in poverty in you know in rural Texas mm. to becoming an incredibly powerful senator during the 1950s desperate to be president finally gets there he'd not had much of an interest in foreign policy always knew his goals were, were to be a transformative domestic president and then his presidency is ruined by by Vietnam so I think there is Johnson was could be very self-pitying and I think there is a large degree of that but he, um, I, th I think he he was essentially just ruined by this. Yeah, he goes back to Texas, back to his ranch. Um, he'd quit smoking and, and massively cut down on drinking after he'd had a heart attack in the late 50s. After he leaves the presidency, he essentially starts smoking again, starts drinking again. Um, grows his hair up. Have you seen the pictures of him? He has this kind no, of long, white, white hair. Right. Um, I read quite an interesting analysis of it about someone comparing it that the Johnson just essentially embraced the kind of hippie lifestyle and growing his hair right. out. I don't know about that, but essentially you do you did really get the sense of a man who was just beaten and broken and just sort of let himself mm. go um, and sort of retreated to his ranch. Um, yeah, yeah. To say this is the man who his his whole career had been building up to the presidency, and then he leaves it, you know, in, yeah. in disgrace. So there is there is tragedy there, but. You know, so as much as I have sympathy, which I like Lyndon Johnson, you know, I think a lot of his pity would have been for himself. Um, when obviously there's far more tragic for the for the you know the young American soldiers and all the Vietnamese, you know, who, who died as a result of this conflict. So I might mm. have sympathy for Johnson, 
I have far more sympathy, you know, for the victims of yeah. the war. Absolutely, absolutely. That that image that you portrayed there of Johnson on his ranch, smoking, drinking, long white hair, sits in stark contrast with the image that Robert Caro paints of Johnson in his early career in politics in Washington, running towards towards the the, the government buildings then on the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Re- really quite interesting because you, you see there in, in Caro's writing the the drive that this man has for power. And then he gets the power, of course, but it it, it ends in, in such a way that he doesn't want it anymore. It's quite extraordinary that he doesn't run for a second term in office when he has fought tooth and nail, and quite meticulously so, to mm-hmm. gain power. Even, even in high school, even when he was in high school, this, this Nietzschean phrase, and Nietzsche features quite heavily on this, this podcast talking about values, but this will to power that he has seems to be incredibly strong within him almost insuppressible so he's he's one of them and this is why i think you know if historians go back to him again and again so why i go back to studying johnson again and again he is one of the most fascinating characters in american history and so in the presidency and you know there's 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 a phrase kind of the um that's described as as the many lyndon johnsons that one of the things so interesting about him that he is this um this person of so many sides and some of them incredibly admirable admirable um and many of them pretty deplorable and a lot of the time he's his own worst enemy so yeah he has this drive for power this ambition um and you see it in his his ability to uh get things done that no one thought was possible you know there's stories of how when he was leader of, of the senate you know he was the kind of ultimate uh deal maker politician you know, you, you do occasionally hear sort of analysts in the US, a Democratic analysts kind of lamenting that, you know, we don't have a Lyndon Johnson, that, you know, Biden doesn't have Lyndon Johnson, mm. Biden, uh, Obama didn't have Lyndon Johnson. Someone who just gets things, who understands yeah. power, understands the levers of power and makes things happen. Mm. Um, he was incredibly talented at spotting opportunities that other people hadn't for power. So, um, for instance, the leader of the Senate before he took on the role had been a pretty kind of ceremonial position. He realized that actually there were quite a few kind of levers of power that they had access to. He took on the role and made it the most powerful uh, politician by the president um, and really transformed the role into making himself uh, kind of this term. You know, if you've read, you've read the Cairo books, you know, master of the Senate, he makes that role of leader of the Senate the one it is today, um, which continues to be today um, with pretty problematic consequences over the past few years. But honestly, yeah. that's a result of Johnson's kind of drive yeah. there. But also he's hugely insecure. He's incredibly sensitive. He takes things very personally. He can't handle media criticism. Um, you know, he creates enemies easily. Um, so, you know, and, and a lot of the time that when things start to go wrong, those traits cause you a lot of problems. Yes. Um, and, you know, I, I think you, you see a lot of his worst traits and worst um, aspects of his personality in some of the Vietnam yeah. making that he is in some ways quite overawed and also quite hostile to some of his advisors he inherits from Kennedy, who he sees mm. as these kind of overeducated private school mm. boys where he went to, you know, teach a trainer training college and never went to, to any of these sort of posh prep schools. In some ways he's kind of overawed, in some ways he's quite resentful of them, but he never really gets kind of a, a, a grip of his own set of, of advisors, of an own foreign policy advisors reliant on Kennedy's. And as we as we talked earlier, that you know, then he's often making these decisions out of out of anxiety, out of 
fear of these imagined consequences. Um, and then as he gets more entrenched into these decisions, um, lashing out at anyone who offers alternative mm. advice um, or criticism or what he sees as disloyalty. So yeah. Yeah, I think in, in terms of leadership, some of those are really not good qualities, yeah. you know, yeah. of, of not welcoming that alternative advice, of not um, being willing to reconsider your position. And so, yeah, you see, you see the strength of Lyndon Johnson in, in the presidency, particularly mm. with the domestic legislation. But you do see, I think, those weaknesses on thinking about sort of big strategic foreign policy decisions, you know, it, it is not where his strengths lie. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's a fascinating point. It's a bit tangential to this, but I think it's worth making in the sense that in from a, a leadership point of view is that leaders can, if they're not careful, if they do have that sensitivity and they are quite quite thin-skinned in relation to criticism or alternative viewpoints, they can very quickly be surrounded by liars, essentially. Mm -hmm. People who either deliberately convey false information, false opinions, false judgments on things that toe the party line, or people just simply withhold information. They withhold vital information that's necessary for, for the greater good. So really interesting points that, that are drawn out there, Tom. Thank you for that. Just in terms of the, the end of the war, then, just, just bringing things to, to a close a little bit. One thing that, that stood out to me, I wanted to check this with, with you from your perspective as well, was at the, the end of the, the Vietnam War, Sean was mentioning his view that, that really what, what did for the, the Americans and the South Vietnam at the, at the end of the war wasn't so much the, the military side of things, the military strength aspect of things. It was more about the internal corruption in, in the South and in the Southern government. And that's really what, what hollowed, hollowed it out. It was that lack of political legitimacy. What, what would you say to that in terms of the cause of the uh, America and, and the South's failure in the Vietnam War? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 Sean would be, would be a much better place than me to, to speak to this. And there's been some really good research recently in, into what has quite long been neglected, which is the sort of the period, the period from sort of 69 onwards in South Vietnam um, and, and what actually the South Vietnamese government looks like. So I think there's a bit more of a nuanced picture emerging, but certainly the, the, the goal of creating this stable country that could survive independently of vast American aid just simply never happens. There is never a sense that there's a government that has widespread support, widespread support with, you know, outside of the major cities, um, also of a government that's not entirely reliant on the United States to survive. And Nixon's strategy from say from 69 onwards is this idea of Vietnamization, which is that we are going to empower the South Vietnamese to fight this war themselves. We'll start scaling back American presence while building up both the South Vietnamese government in terms of kind of technical expertise and, and training, but also the South Vietnamese military. So we can leave them to either continue fighting the war themselves or defend themselves in the future. The reality, I think, is that what actually Nixon ends up realizing fairly quickly is that's never going to happen. And what really Nixon is trying to do is get them just to the point where it's called the, the, it's called the decent interval thesis of basically get them to the point where they're strong enough to not immediately collapse the second American forces leave, but give it long enough to be able to say, well, you know, we did our part. We left them in a strong position. And it's their fault if they're unable to, to keep fighting. So that's where you really you see American 
combat troops are leaving 1973. And then it's a couple of years later that finally, you know, the, the North successfully invades um, and reunifies the country. So, yeah, I, I don't think that there, there was ever a point in which South Vietnamese government and as a country was strong enough to survive. And I think it's also pretty clear that the Americans were well aware of this, so, but by even fairly early in Nixon's presidency, and it became about how do we get American forces out without doing it so suddenly that there's immediate collapse and give us a little bit of time to kind of have sort of plausible deniability almost. Now, the strategy kind of doesn't quite work for Nixon because for other reasons, he's out of office by the time North Vietnamese, uh, North Vietnam successfully invades and reunifies the country and it lands on, on Gerald Ford uh, to deal with that. But I think that's the idea. So I, I, I think certainly from the American point of view, there's very little sense that actually we're going to win this and we can win this, certainly by the time of the, the early 70s and near the end of Nixon's time in charge. Yeah, very interesting. It's such a fascinating topic is the Vietnam War. There's so many complexities to it. It's it's little wonder that the Ken Burns documentaries amount to about 18 to 20 hours or so. I'm sure they could have been much longer if if there wasn't some heavy editing going on as well, Not not least because of all the media coverage that was that was put out and that was captured and then broadcast out from the wall so final question then tom putting your your teaching hat on for a moment given that the vietnam war is such a, a complex issue there are so many complexities to it and so many nuances to it what thinking about your students then and, and thinking about students who you, you might teach and you might have taught on this particular topic on this particular subject given that the, the vietnam war is so complex what are some of the the principles or the lessons that you would you would hope that they would take away from the Vietnam War and and apply in their thinking or just in everyday life? So I think what most often when I'm teaching this, I'm teaching it as part of a course um, about the presidencies of Kennedy and Johnson. So it's often within the context of, of presidential leadership. So a lot of the time we're, we're talking about the importance of an individual within a decision-making structure. So um, how significant is it that it is Lyndon Johnson rather than John F. Kennedy, who's the one who's in the hot seat when we reach this point? How contingent is it on factors such as Kennedy wouldn't have been thinking about re-election, but Johnson was? How much do these calculations play out into how a president makes decisions? And then to think a little bit about, well, what, what are the facts they should be considering? What are the calculations they should be making? Um, while thinking about doing something else serious as you know, committing American forces abroad. And generally they end up, I think, coming out with being fairly critical of, of Johnson's decision-making, but also understanding that it's taking place within some really problematic, bigger frameworks and that some, there's some serious problems with American foreign policy principles in general. Because I think if, if nothing else, and we touched on this a little bit already, but the intervention in Vietnam doesn't happen in a vacuum it's the kind of culmination of many years of american growth of, it, of its global role its commitments and the it is i think evidence of overreach and of a willingness to intervene without fully understanding the consequences of what exactly it is you're getting involved in i think the fact that you see when you try and break down actually why the united states is entering the conflict what they're trying to achieve, how they set out to achieve them, and how likely they are to achieve those goals, it all falls down pretty quickly 
and crumbles fairly easily in terms of thinking that this is going to be a winnable conflict on the terms that, that they're fighting it. So there are problems there about individual decision making, but also really structural problems about how American foreign policy is being made and why so many people are unable to see these flaws, um, certainly at least until the war is well underway when many American policymakers then start to develop quite a lot of hindsight, but there's only really a handful of people who are saying in the early 60s, this is going to be a disaster, when really far more people should have been able to spot that. And I think there's plenty of lessons there about understanding why you're intervening, how you're intervening, and really having much more questioning as to whether you should be intervening at all. Honest was a bigger question about if you, if you do feel that, that an intervention is necessary, possibly Johnson's biggest mistake is that because he's unsure about it and doesn't really want to intervene and would rather it be done quietly, um, he doesn't make any attempt to really rally the public behind the cause or explain why the United mm. States is intervening there. And he misses out on what sometimes termed the kind of the rally around the flag effect, which is, you know, if a president goes to Congress, goes to the American public and says, we have to go to war for this reason, yeah. you often get this kind of groundswell of support. This never happens with Vietnam because it's done essentially in these kind of gradual stages. It's not quite covert, but Johnson would rather it be not get a great deal of publicity, not be any great fanfare around American troops going. What that means is you, as they start getting drawn deeper and deeper in, more and more casualties, public opinion turns against this war far quicker than most of the conflicts, in part because of the nature of the war, but also in part because you haven't got that kind of groundswell of intervention, a support for intervention that comes when you're able to explain your case clearly, state yeah. the reasons for intervening, whether they're true or not. All right, Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, hmm. famous landmark speech is kind of rallying the American people around a cause. Hmm. Lyndon Johnson, not even, no speech when the first American troops are sent into land, you know, it, it is wow. a very different type of conflict and that becomes a problem very quickly. So, wow. yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I can leave that there. So much, thank, thanks for that, Tom. There's so much to draw out of that in terms of, of leadership and some of the pitfalls of leadership and really interesting when, when you put it like that, how there was no rallying speech that spoke to this common cause and, and how that maybe does indicate that the assumptions were, were faulty behind the reasons for going in in the first place and the fact that America probably was overstepping the mark. I was talking to Sean last week about how it seems to me as an, as a, an outsider to this that, that it was destined to fail. And that, that it wasn't, I mean, he, he, the way he put it was that the hearts and minds of the Vietnamese people weren't, weren't for, for the Americans to win or lose because so much depended on what was happening in the South. And it sounded like Americans were going into this, they, they kind of stayed, strayed out of their lane, so to speak. And they were going into the situation that was very, very complex, very fraught with, with difficulties and contentions internally within the country and within each part of the country as well. So, so many things to, to learn from it. Thank you so much. For your time and your insight tom it's been fascinating discussing this with you from the the american perspective plenty more that we we could have talked about no doubt but but um we we have time limits on these things so um nonetheless plenty for us to chill so thank you again tom for joining me on the real clear values podcast thanks for having me on tom thank you for listening to the real clear values podcast with tom english if you know anyone who is looking for success that's both meaningful and sustainable for themselves or their organization, then please send them this podcast. 
And if you yourself are looking to create a life of purpose, meaning and fulfillment for your own version of sustainable success, then I offer a mentoring program that will get you on your way. Just go to 3stewardships.com or message me directly to tom at 3stewardships.com. That's tom at 3stewardships.com. Until next time, I'm Tom English and I wish you all the best in your own pursuit of sustainable success.